Welcome to Page One or Bust, your ultimate guide to ranking on page one of search engines. We've introduced our revolutionary pillar-based marketing strategy to help you achieve page one rankings. Now it's time to roll up your sleeves and put the digital pen to paper. In part two of our Writer's Roundtable series, we're talking to two seasoned content managers about choosing the right topic that will drive traffic to your website. Taz Walters and Amber Peckham join Drew and Ryan this episode to share advice on getting started choosing your topic, how to conduct data-driven research into the topic you chose, and much more. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from today's sponsor. Page One or Bust is brought to you by Demand Jump. Get insights, drive outcomes with Demand Jump. Get started creating content that ranks at demandjump.com today. And now, here are your co-hosts, Drew Detzler and Ryan Brock. Welcome back to Page One or Bust. This is your co-host, Drew Detzler, VP of Marketing at Demand Jump. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Brock, our Chief Content Officer here at Demand Jump. We have another yep. great episode lined up. Today is part two of our writing roundtable series. If you missed it, we broke down how to write pillar content. So we've talked about the process of, of that writing. Now today we're going to jump into picking those topics and getting started. We're sort of going back to the start and thinking about, okay, if we want to build this network of content on our website, what does it look like? How do we know uh, the topic's a good topic and what stands out to writers as they first get an assignment and see, okay, this is what I have to write about. Hmm, that's going to be tough or that's going to be great or that's going to be effective or whatever. So today here we've got two individuals who are two of the best in the business and, and really, really great perspectives to share on this. We've got Taz Walters, senior content writer here at Demand Jump. Taz, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. And Amber Peckham, my longtime partner in crime and senior content writer, pod leader here at Demand Jump as well. Amber, how are you? Hey, bro. Doing good. All right. Let's talk about content topics. Woohoo. Let's do it. Let's zoom in really close on like, you know, I don't want to ask a question as basic as like, what is a content topic? But in our world, the work that we're doing in pillar-based marketing every day, like what are you, when you're setting a topic, what's your goal? What are you trying to do when you're saying, okay, my first job is to set a topic. What's the point in that, Taz? I think the point of setting that topic is picking the thing that your business cares about and what you're trying to get your audiences to care about. So picking a topic, that is related and is going to let you talk about what you do and is also going to give people the answer to the questions that they're searching is really important. It's kind of utilitarian in a way, right? You're not doing a grand, expressive, creative thing. This is really much that realm of education. It is that writing and connection rather than like, well, what do I want to write about? Yeah, I would take it even more utilitarian and say like lead conversion, thinking about the goal at the end of your sales funnel is another part of it too, because we used to work without doing that before we came to Demand Jump and, you know, people would maybe still be interested in learning about the topic, but then the client is just, you know, publishing content to their website that doesn't achieve their ultimate business goal, which is to make more money. So I think that choosing the topic, it depends how you're selling and who you're selling to and like what they need to learn to make that decision to purchase. Do you have any interesting examples of when that was done really well or maybe really bad in your experience? Like, okay, yeah, this is a topic the business cares about, but the audience doesn't care at all and they're not going to buy. Or maybe the flip side of this is a topic that the audience cares about, but we're not getting any leads from it. I'm thinking of all the FedEx surcharges pieces we wrote and UPS surcharges pieces we wrote to help the client that we were helping rank was like a, a platform for enterprise to analyze their shipping 
living costs, but those people at that level and in that role aren't necessarily worried about calculating the surcharges for themselves or knowing like what they're going to be. So it felt like we were kind of writing something for the general consumer or the individual when Mm. the reader that was actually going to close for this client was someone who didn't need that information. But because that's what was shown to be like the most valuable search term, that's what we wrote too. Taz, do you ever feel like there's a balance to be struck between like doing the work of addressing the questions that are important to the network for the sake of having that network, even if it's not the right audience? Or is it always better just to say, well, our audience isn't asking that specific question, so we're not going to answer it? I think it's interesting that Amber brought up that specific instance, because I do agree in that instance, it wasn't quite the right fit. However, on the flip side of that, you look at something like the Excel reporting that we did. We wrote a whole pillar about Excel reporting. The people who we were really targeting were accountants or people who were doing these really specific types of spreadsheets and functions and forms in Microsoft Excel that the everyday person isn't going to be doing. But we were still creating content around those basic everyday questions and building that network and building that whole ecosystem of content is part of what helped that pillar rank so highly and beat Microsoft. Props. So then you do have the top one position. And then even when you have people coming in who aren't those accountants or those ideal audience, you're still capturing that ideal audience because you're in number one. It's almost like you're saying Google doesn't care about your business objectives. It cares about what's going to be authoritative and answer a question well. But we have to care about the business objectives. So that's where the human element comes in. Yeah, it's a really tough dance to figure out the balance there. Yeah. And finding a way that you can give value in the same piece of content to both your business objectives, the people who you really want to reach, and also the people who you need to reach to get that network effect. So having value for more than one reader in the same piece of content. We talk a lot about the art and the science of it, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about here is that you do need to have business objectives when it comes to marketing content. But without the art of it, without the human element, Google doesn't want it. Search engines don't want it. And the reason they don't want it is because users don't want it. Right. Like, I mean, who wants to go and read a 3000 word blog that doesn't actually answer the question that you have or takes the question that you have and answers it in a convoluted way? that is written for somebody else. Or you read it and you think, I could have written this better. And then you completely (laughs) opt out of being interested in that brand because you don't see them as someone with authority. Amber, I I don't think I've ever met, and this is no offense to anybody on the call or anyone listening, I don't think I've ever met a better researcher in my life than Amber. Just the way that you dive in and then like also like call BS on bad sources and like find good sources and like know the difference. How does that play into the way that you go about answering a question? Like Taz, you were talking about like you want the question to actually be answered. When you go out there to research a subject that you don't know a lot about, how does like the landscape of what's already on page one influence your choice? as you're writing that content? Well, it's easy for me to see what is relevant and what is maybe stuff that I'm not interested in. You know, I might open like two or three of the rankings on page one for, you know, whatever piece I'm writing. And then from there, I'm just going to go into the network of whatever sources and resources that those pieces refer to. And then I'm just going to kind of keep peeling the onions. So I'm not interested in like staying in that broad top of the funnel stuff for too long because that's not where our content needs to live. So I really just try to like 
get laser focused on what data I need. And also, I just love to ask questions. And so whatever question comes up for me about, well, I wonder how many of this or, you know, what kind of that, that's where I really think about looking for those data points that will be interesting to the reader. Yeah, I yeah. think what you said about peeling the onion is a good comment because a lot of times when you're trying to find the actual data and sources to back up the things that you're writing, you have to do a lot of digging yeah. and you have to actually track down the statistics to find the right studies. And hopefully this won't be a surprise to people, but a lot of times stuff on the internet just links to other things that aren't actually this real study. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no. Two sources no. that are citing each other as the original source. Then I'll just go with in a the circle. original source. Yeah. And it's a circle. So being able to like track it back and go and say, no, I want to actually read the real study, make sure that's what they're actually saying, make sure that does support the points that I'm trying to make, make sure it is supporting the topic that has been selected. So I really do have a grounding in what I'm writing about before I start writing. Yeah. And I think it's so funny how like so many marketers are drawn to the stats that fit their story the most. What are those data points? And so I find all the time, like the more specific I want to get, the more likely it is that I'm going to find like some statistic that has become widely accepted in like the marketing community, for example, like about, you know, how many, how many marketers feel like they're not getting enough value from their organic content or something. Everybody's citing the same original source that actually is from like 2003 right. and therefore completely irrelevant. And it doesn't actually exist in an original form on the internet anymore and like it's just entered the collective consciousness and it, it's really a bummer when you're trying to like make a good point and you realize that this data point that you found is completely useless. Yeah and sometimes I mean it has definitely happened where once I start doing that research I realize how much I've come into a topic list and underlying assumption that is wrong. Mm -hmm. And having to let go of that underlying assumption and actually write what the data I'm finding is saying so that it is valuable for the reader because it's true. Yes. And with the same energy, like, and to what Ryan was saying too, like a lot of times you do have to go to that primary source because people will paraphrase the source incorrectly or literally just misread it because they want to and they think yeah. it makes a better point if they, you know, they just want to make the point they want to make and, you know, you can kind of make the data say anything thing in this world today. So yeah, that's why I personally take it really seriously to find that primary source and not just link to an article that claims it saw it somewhere else. What happens when, and I'm sure it's when, not if, what happens when you go down those rabbit holes and you find the original data and you realize that the original thesis your customer probably wants to put out there isn't actually accurate or <laughs> representative of the real world. Have you ever run into that? Oh, for sure. But I would just say that part of that also is the ability to assume and speak from perspectives unlike your own. And so you just try to get in the mindset. And if the data isn't there, then think of another argument, think of another angle. Or so most clients will let you speak directly to the fact that, hey, you know, the situation's complicated and let you be at least somewhat honest without taking away their position in the market. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just like a lot of times there is actually value in being upfront about, hey, there's conflicting information. There's conflicting data. There's stuff that supports this point of view and there's stuff that doesn't support this point of view. Here's what we think and why we think the opposite of this. And then you let your reader make the decision themselves. And a lot of times that's actually a valuable way to inspire trust in your reader. Mm -hmm. There's some Greek philosopher who that was the method of presenting the two viewpoints and then letting the person make up their mind. And I forget who it was, but you could probably Google that if you want. Okay. This is 
Great conversation. I love this mixing the human element with the data. And a lot of times the the human element involves gathering that data and learning that topic. Now you've written the content, it's out there in the world, it's published. How, how do you as a writer measure the success of that content and of the topic? I will add my take as a marketer as well. But Taz, why don't we leave with you? Sure. Of course, I could get into going and looking at the analytics, looking at the data, looking at how it's performing, all those things. But really, for me, the biggest tell is, is this client coming back for more writing? Are we doing more projects for them? You know, we have a lot of clients who we've had a very long relationships with because time and time again, we're getting those results that they care about. I think it happens on a couple levels, like on the personal level, I would say, you know, would I let the client put my name on it? And what do I think this is a good piece of craft? Does it flow from beginning to end? Does it sound, you know, what's our time on page? Are people reading it to the end? If so, then something there is working and it is successful. My next question would be, you know, is it driving people to my call to action? Are they clicking whatever link? Is the client closing more business or better qualified business as a result? Basically, like, is the story I'm telling achieving its emotional impact? That would be what I would call a success. I love that perspective because I, as a marketing robot, am just <laughs> looking at money, right? How many how many dollars are we driving from this? Are we closing deals? Are we selling our product? And also, you know, traffic as a leading indicator. But I love that perspective of I'm actually writing something that people want to read. And if they do if I am, then they're reading it and that client or customer will come back to us for more of it. I think that is the piece that marketers miss so often in the past is that that just create content that people want to read, answer their questions. When Marketer A gets tasked with creating content or generating more organic traffic, they brainstorm ideas, they get up on a whiteboard and they start talking about what they want to talk about and they create content that the user has no interest in and it flops and they run away from it and never do it again. Yeah, and it's something that I've realized the more that we focus on pillar-based marketing and organic content, driving rankings and results, that communicating all the stuff that Taz glazed over appropriately at the beginning of Taz's response about mm-hmm. analytics, page one rankings, and what is the what is the like measurable marketing impact of stuff? It's really, really important to communicate that back to writers. And I, I, I'm saying I realized that as if like I came up with this idea, people like Taz and Amber made it clear to me that like they weren't hearing enough of that and I'm still not doing a good enough job. And I think all that comes together to say that while writers love to say that like they want to make sure that what they're doing doing is well received by the reader and it's it's answering questions it's bringing them value that it's well written and engaging and thoughtful and all of that it also helps to actually have some numbers to look at and to know that this is resulting in a good return so it all comes together and makes it a little bit more tangible and i think that that's something that i need to be better at and i think any marketer out there should be thinking about is like how do i really make sure to communicate the impact of the writing to the people writing that content yeah i mean i did glaze over them because i'm not a numbers person but yeah (laughs) it is important to have those numbers because they do actually convey that impact that we've been talking about. Yeah, both of those ideas work in unison, right? You don't don't get revenue without creating content that users like. Yeah, I think glazing over it is like actually the right perspective. Man, yeah, just just knowing there is a way to like in some ways measure how people are responding to what you're doing is is, it's nice. It's it's something that wasn't possible.
possible even 10 years ago in the level that it is now. Amber and Taz, I have one more question for you around selecting a topic, selecting that initial topic that you end up focusing on and interactions you've had with customers. I have, in previous jobs, I've literally sat in a room with a whiteboard and brainstormed ideas of what we should be writing about that quarter or that half of the year. And it has been as simple as people rake leaves this time of year. I'm, boom, raking leaves, put it on the board. That's our leader in the clubhouse. Like it, it has been as simple as that. And I know that you guys have had customers that are still probably doing that method. I think we should write about X, flip a coin and pick it. H- how do you combat that? And how do you help them make decisions on what that topic should be? Amber, is this something you've run into? Yeah, definitely. I would say that it's challenging to respectfully remind someone that their perspective on what needs to be written about is not the important one. But in those situations, it is essential because it's not really about what Drew thinks Demanjo should be writing content about, for example, even though you're our marketing officer, it's about like what content our audience is looking for. So rather than flip a coin, what you need to be doing is saying to yourself, which of these two things is going to be more interesting and engaging to our audience and drive the outcomes we're looking for? Because it's not so arbitrary as just like, oh, this is what we feel like writing about or what we think is interesting. There, without intention behind it, then you're not going to achieve an intentional outcome. So I just sass them up. I just tell them no. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Keep it up. Taz, how about you? Yeah, that really goes back to what I was talking about, coming into something with an underlying assumption. I think a lot of people think, oh, I know what my business does. I know what we should be writing about. I know what customers are searching for. But then when you actually look at what the actual data says, There's a lot of surprises there. And the people who are searching for the things that your company does are probably not searching for the thing you think that they're searching for. In fact, like, I don't think I've ever seen someone get it right. And and all the times people have said, well, the most important I get it question we get asked is this. Then you go on the data, you look at look at that search behavior and it's never it's never even on the top 10. And it's not because that person's wrong. Their perspective is what it is. But people are their most honest and pure when they're typing a question into a search engine. Yeah. Uh, right. And so like we can learn things about what people actually want from that behavior that maybe aren't so easy to glean from a conversation with a customer who knows they're talking to the VP of marketing or whatever. I've told this story a hundred times, but I'll tell it again because I think it's just so enlightening of this fact. I used to work for an orchestra doing marketing and I had to design ads for our season. And my executive director was in her 50s and she'd been in this business for ages. And I designed our season ad and I brought it to her and it was a beautiful picture of our new conductor and it had our website on it. It was very simple. It was clean. The whole point was just to get people to go to our website and look at our upcoming season. She took that ad and she said, no, 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 this is all wrong. You have to fix it. She said, well, you have to put every single concert date and every single piece of information about all the concerts on our season on this ad for when it runs. I said, well, then you can't see the picture. Like, that'll take up all the space. Like, why? And she said, oh, well, it's because people tear it out of the magazine and put it on their refrigerator so that then they have all the dates that they can see it all season. I said... That's what you do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. What person does this? That's exactly right. Have you seen anyone else do what this? Person? And you're that person. And that's what you want in an ad. But I guarantee you, our demographics that are not you, you. <laughs> they're not doing that. Exactly. So 
that's the kind of thing that you have to be aware of when you're making those decisions about, you know, what are my biases and perspectives that I'm coming into that probably are just me? Yeah, I think we especially see it a lot with jargon or like industry terms that or whatever people call their business and their lines of business internally that they think is a phrase that somehow their users are going to know to search for. They don't. They're probably using five words to make up for one word that you know. But if you don't know how the lay person is coming to the table, then you can't meet them there to what Drew was saying. Exactly right. The example I used to give in like presentations on on this topic was e-surance. They used to have ads (laughs) where they talked about how like they're cheap because of their efficiency and their technology, unlike their competitors, the cut rate insurance companies. And like they would never explain what that meant and and it's a small thing but like i feel like i could see the chain of possession of like okay marketing came up with this cut rate insurance as like a here's our competitor profile and then like that makes it into some copy because someone uses it every day and now we're talking about cut rate when if they just said like made a pun about the general or something like i don't know like there's other ways to go about explaining what you mean that people are actually going to understand exactly where they definitely went to content writers after that saying you need to work cut rate insurance into this somewhere where on the flip side of that is it was it safe auto was um state minimum coverage that, look, yeah. that's what the customer was looking for state minimum coverage mm-hmm. and they it's, just yes, threw it out exactly there. and it's it's so literal and yep. it's like for people who don't want frills and they want the cheapest like legal <laughs> insurance like that makes so much more sense and of course we're talking about like radio ads but like all of this is so true Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, just because something is a keyword, it's not also a term that will resonate with users in like print or radio or or anything else. Like it works yep. offline yeah. too. Yeah, totally. we're learning how to speak the, our, our customers' language and share that language with yeah. them. That's important. You can't be a thought leader for only people that are looking to buy auto insurance right now. You need to be a th- thought right. leader on auto insurance in, in general, right? Be the true expert and not just the selling expert. Yes, authority is not just a jargon word. Like yeah. search engines are really above everything else in the business of understanding and quantifying and even qualifying authority. How do we understand what authority means? How does someone win authority? How do we know who has more authority than other people? And like, it it has to be a holistic approach to a topic. If you really want to be seen as authoritative, it's so important to this. Exactly. And Amber, you mentioned the company jargon. We keep using our own phrases and that's what people end up writing about. That's what gets marketing leaders in trouble, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And well, it's almost fact, right? You, you get charged with creating a bunch of content. You spend a ton of money on creating content. <laughs> you, create, you spend a ton I of money. Just, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> it's my opinion, but it's but it's actually fact. This that was a, beautiful. This, this is a fact. <laughs> you... you, you you get this budget, you spend a ton of money creating content, but you create content around the stuff that you're talking about in meeting rooms and the jargon that, that you use, and that content flops. Mm. And all of a sudden you're on the chopping block because you spent your entire budget on stuff that produced nothing when you should be listening to the audience and figuring out what the audience is actually looking for. And way. sometimes that's more fun, right? Like Amber, yeah. I mean, over the years, how many times have we sat down doing what you're saying and just all right, we got to come up with an editorial calendar for this customer. Let's just write up all of our ideas on the board. And like, you end up writing some fun stuff, but man, it kind of stings when, you know, you realize nobody read that fun stuff that you wrote. I don't know. It's tough. I'm thinking of the blog that I wrote called Christmas Poems to Read at your, with Your Friends and Family that was just like a list of links to poems because we needed something Christmas themed. And, you know, 
for like a finance exactly. company, a very niche <laughs> finance company. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm going to do a section it's, for religious ones and a section for non-religious ones. This is great. Yeah, I'm sure all five people who have ever seen that in the last five years, really. Let's make it six. Send it, it over. I, I need will. Some, I need I'll some good it. poems for the maybe holiday. We can, uh, maybe we can share it as some other resources with this podcast. <laughs> Everyone can enjoy <laughs> I think that's going to be our office Christmas party is oh, just God. reading that blog to everybody. Draw them out of the hat and you have to read whichever one you choose. Yes. I love it. I'm there. We're going to meme the hell out of this article and just it's going to come up with a whole new life now. <laughs> All right, Drew, I think we are ready for our lighting round, I believe. This has been a great conversation, but I want to I want to get the, to the hard-hitting stuff stuff here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Lightning round. Taz, what is the last thing that you searched? I search a lot of weird stuff. The last thing I searched was, are cashews actually nuts? They're not. They're droops. Um, they're they're only nuts in the culinary sense. Wow, is Drew a droop? You got Drew. Yeah, that's my. I was like my childhood nickname uh, as a you know a droop. Droop. I'll always be a droop. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Amber, what's the last thing you searched? I was working right before we got on this call, so I searched for improvements in oil drilling efficiency since you know the turn of the century to oh, now. Wow. So how has uh, since the rotary drill was invented in like the 1880s or 90s, how has we made less of a mess? Question mark. Have we? Question mark. That is the life of a content writer. All right. Before I get to the next lightning round question, how many of the writers have tried to be on Jeopardy? Oh, I take the test every year. Okay, good. But you can only take it once a year. Well, I took it on the free day this year. Don't they do that right? Where it's like, hey, you can do it again today on the special Jeopardy day or whatever. And I, I bombed it hard. Well, I've taken it once, but you don't get, they don't tell you how you do, right? It's just like, thanks. They tell you. If you're in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know I bombed it hard. Oh, yeah. I don't even need to be told. <laughs> well, with the knowledge you guys are gaining on a day-to-day basis, you guys should keep taking it. Yes, but but a lot of the specific things we learn are so specific mm-hmm. that it's like almost too specific for Jeopardy. Like, I don't know that Jeopardy's ever going to have a category about rat birth control. <laughs> Diesel turbochargers. I mean, it could oh, be that. Diesel turbochargers. <laughs> they could, <laughs> but probably not. All right. Continue the lightning round. Amber, bust a writing myth for us. I guess I would say I think one myth that is out there to people who are not writers is this idea of the writers, this like romantic artist. And it's certainly true, but like writing is not that hard once you get good at it. And it's not always some big creative agonizing lift of the ego where you're suffering in a room and drinking whiskey and hating your mom or whatever. Like, I think that (laughs) there's a, a big romanticism around the work that we do that not only causes us to be perceived in certain ways, but also maybe causes people to think that they can't do it. And language is a tool like anything else, and you can learn to use it like any other tool. You just have to practice. My writing myth is one that I'm sure a lot of people will take a lot of umbrage with, so I'm excited to say it. Rules are made up. (laughs) And like, it doesn't matter. Like Amber's kind of saying like, yeah, language is just a tool. So sometimes you should write really informally and casually and break grammar rules. Sometimes you should write in a very specific AP style or MLA or whatever, but there's no right way to do it. Yeah. You can do however you want. You can use a hammer to open a can. Are you supposed to? No. Can you? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) 
I mean, like, everything's made up. It's all made up. up. Everything's made up. It, the rules don't matter. Figure out what style of writing works to communicate what you need to communicate with the people you need to communicate with and do that. All right. Taz, favorite topic you've ever written about? Oh, oh a that's lot. a bad question for Taz. I know that's, that. That's a bad topic for me because I get really fascinated. I will say I loved writing about rat birth control. I loved writing about diesel engines because of Rudolf Diesel. Oh, I actually really liked writing about turbochargers. I forgot my favorite one. Five gallon buckets. I was going to say. Loved writing about five gallon buckets. I thought that's where you're going from the start. I forgot. It's been so long. I wrote so much about five gallon buckets and I loved every second of it. That's awesome. And I think we actually talked about five gallon buckets on the last episode. So Amber, your favorite topic. One time for the Metonymy Media blog, I got to write a big long piece about the movie Labyrinth, which is one of my favorite movies. Why it functions as a piece of narrative. That was fun. And I had a reason to get paid to watch Labyrinth. I mean, come on. But from the client side, I would say recent projects. I mean, it's been a long eight years. Hey, Ryan. Recent projects. Yeah. <laughs> I would say I really enjoyed writing about the RVs. We recently wrote for an Indiana RV manufacturer. That was fun. I just liked looking at all the different floor plans and types, features, kind of like house shopping. And I also do enjoy writing like some of our more just like general entrepreneurship content, anything that helps people build a business or achieve their goals, dreams, personal dreams I'm here for. Well, this was an incredibly insightful conversation. We started by saying we're going to focus on talking about content topics and we really got deeper into like, what does it mean to create an ideological middle ground between me, the writer and you, the reader that we would call a topic and engage in that topic together and make sure that we did it well and effectively. And and it's fascinating. I loved it. Thank you so much for providing us with thoughtful expressions of your experience as a writer. And I really thank you for uh, helping Drew remember what it's like to do the grant work that he's you know, making everybody do on his behalf. Yes. Thank you, Taz and Amber. This was fantastic. You're welcome. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Jakes. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Drew, as a marketer, you've now had a couple of episodes here to talk to writers. I mean, what did you take out of today's episode that you maybe weren't expecting? Again, it's the human element of the creating of the content. It's so easy to get locked in on the keywords that you're using and generating revenue from that content. And really, you should step back from that and think about creating content that the user wants to read. Two episodes in a row now that I've that's hit home. It's not just about technical stuff and word count. Like the writer's job is to really embody their reader's headspace and to find a way to bridge the gap between their client, you know, and, and who they're communicating with. So exactly. it's a magical thing. If you like what you heard today, make sure to check out part three. We've talked about how to write pillar content and today told you how to pick a topic and make sure it's a good one. Next, we'll be talking about where to find these talented writers for your company and it might not be where you expect. So stay tuned. That's right. Thanks for tuning in and thanks again to our fantastic guests, Taz and Amber. That's it for this episode of Page One or Bust. We'll see you next time. Page One or Bust is brought to you by Demand Jump. Know the exact content to create to increase first page rankings and drive outcomes with Demand Jump. Get started for free today at demandjump.com.